All right, everybody, if you have your Bibles, please do go ahead and open them with me to Exodus chapter 20. Even as we grieve, we need the very words of God for our souls, don't we? No better way we can spend our time than in God's Word. We are now into the second section of this book of Exodus, and we are just one week into a three-month study of the Ten Commandments. Last week, we We studied the prologue, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, which is all about the redeeming grace of God for the Israelites out of Egypt and for our souls as well from sin and death. Grace is the foundation and the commandments follow. And today we are beginning by to study the first commandment in verse 3. And so let's begin by reading verses 1 to 3 together. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. This, this first commandment is the foundation for all the others. The, these words, you shall have no other gods before me, are the, the starting point for the rest of the law and truly, in many ways, for the Christian's entire existence. These, these eight words are so important, so foundational, so defining for God's people that we see them repeated and reiterated many times throughout our Bibles. Judaism in the Old Testament and Christianity in the New are emphatically monotheistic religions. As Christians, we do not believe in a plethora or in a pantheon of gods. We believe in the one true God. And and the truth of this is familiar to us. We know that we don't sing to many gods this morning. We as Christians affirm this truth. We affirm it as a church in our doctrine and in our speech. But but I do not know whether we realize how revolutionary this first commandment would have been in the ancient world, nor do I think we realize, even as Bible-believing Christians, in subtle ways, maybe even at times unconscious ways, how we fail to obey this commandment on a daily basis. Yes, we know that there is only one God and that he exists in three persons. Many of us would never say differently and therefore we often assume that we have this first commandment in the bag. We've got it taken care of. It's easy to follow. We may assume that it is not a big deal. That because we're in this room and because we don't have idols on this stage that this first commandment is simple. None of us have altars or shrines in our homes after all. But church family, what we must see together today is that this first commandment is, is first for a reason. It is first because of the constant danger, even in our lives today as New Testament Christians, to get it wrong. And, and it's first because if we do get it wrong, even in small ways, then we will get everything else wrong in our lives as well. And therefore, friends, we must pray humbly for grace from God to consider together whether we truly understand this commandment, whether by God's grace we are following this commandment or not. 
The main idea for our, our sermon today is very simple because it is nothing more than the verse that we are looking at. It would be weird to have a main idea with more words than the text itself. And so the main idea is simply verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And we're going to look at it by breaking it into four points. Point number one, you. Point number two, shall have. Point number three, no other gods. And point number four, before me. Let's begin with the first point, the first word, you. Who, who are these people that God is speaking to through Moses at Mount Sinai? When, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, who is it that he is speaking to? Th- this is actually a very important question. That word matters because it leads us to, to consider whether these Ten Commandments apply to us today or not. Right? If these are not, if these are just ancient words spoken to a very specific group of people at a very specific time, then why would we spend three months here in 2023 studying them together and seeking to apply them to our lives today? And so answering the question of who the you is in this verse matters. We can answer it a number of different ways. First of all, we can answer the the question of who the you is in a historical way. We can look at the original people that were there at Mount Sinai with Moses and those that first read this text in ancient Israel. And and doing that is very important because knowing the original audience and the, the circumstances that they were going through gets us closest to God's intent for these commandments. So we must do that. But we can also consider the question of who the you is by by looking at a biblical theology standpoint of the Ten Commandments, right? As As we study our entire Bibles, it's very clear that the you of this text, that those that the Ten Commandments are addressed to, is not limited to the original audience. No, the Ten Commandments, indeed the whole law of God is referenced throughout our Bibles and even by Jesus in the New Testament. The list of Ten Commandments that we see here in Exodus chapter 20 is is listed again either in partial or full form many other places. We see it referenced in Exodus chapter 34, in Leviticus chapter 19, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in the the book of Isaiah centuries after this moment in in Exodus chapter 20 at at Mount Sinai, Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, oh that you had listened to my commandments. Daniel confesses before the Lord in Daniel chapter 9 when he says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And then not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New, we we see Jesus, our Savior himself, speak about the Ten Commandments, right? In Luke chapter 18, with the rich young ruler, Jesus gets at his heart issues by using the Ten Commandments, And then later on, he increases the relevance of God's word when he speaks of murder, not just when we take out someone's life, but when we hate someone in our hearts. James, after the ascension of Christ, uses the Ten Commandments. Paul references the Ten Commandments repeatedly. So, church family, clearly these Ten Commandments matter beyond the original context. Clearly, they were meant by God to be for his people beyond the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And yes, that means that they have relevance for you today. But maybe you've heard it said that 
The Old Testament law does not have any power or any importance or relevance in our lives today. Many, many people talk about how Jesus came and fulfilled the law, so the law doesn't really speak to us in any binding way anymore. But we need to, we need to understand this more clearly. Yes, Jesus did come to fulfill the law. Yes, he was the perfect human. Jesus obeyed in ways that you and I simply could not, right? And and Romans chapter 8 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for you and for me. Why? Because Jesus has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Praise God. He's done it for us. He's fulfilled the law. But that doesn't mean that the law is no longer important or relevant, But then you might ask, what about some of the more obscure laws of the Old Testament? Do we need to obey all of those laws? Does this mean that we can't eat pork or we can't wear certain articles of clothing clothing because they have mixed fabric in them, which is forbidden in the book of Leviticus? Does it mean that if a person blasphemes that they should be stoned to death here on Sunday morning before the assembly? These are all laws that we find in the Old Testament. Are all of them still relevant for our lives today? Well, let me speak very briefly about about whether the Old Testament law is still binding on the Christian today or not. This is a very important question. We, We believe that all of God's law is important. All of it is valuable. All of it speaks of God and of our need for Him in relevant ways. But not all of it is binding in the same way that it was for the Israelites in the Old Testament. There are many different ways to talk around this. One of the ways to talk around it is to talk about the the civil and the ceremonial and the moral laws in the Old Testament. The civil law has to do with Israel as a kingdom and as as a nation. God gave many specific commandments that were to help the nation and the kingdom of Israel to function as a kingdom, to have a government, to have a structure, to have order, to pursue justice together. But those laws... Now, since Jesus came in and broadened the work of the gospel in God's grace to more than just the nation of Israel, but to all people in all places, since he established the New Testament church, those civil laws are no longer binding in the same way. Still important to consider, still valuable for our lives in some ways, but not binding in the same way. The other type of law is the ceremonial law, right? So so there are the laws that deal with food, what we eat and and cleanliness and the purification laws. These laws were given because of the the sacrificial system and the, the priesthood in the tabernacle and in the temple because the way that God was going to relate to his people in the Old Testament was through the sacrificial system and cleanliness and purification and holiness mattered greatly. But now... Since King Jesus, our great high priest, has become our sacrifice, and through his death and resurrection, he's done away with the sacrificial system, those laws are no longer binding in the same way. So you have civil laws, you have ceremonial laws, I think they're very good reasons to, to, to not view them as binding in our lives any longer. But then you have the moral laws. The Ten Commandments fall into the moral law category. These, these laws are not specific to the sacrificial system or to the, to the kingdom of Israel. They, they are timeless in that, like we saw last week in the prologue, they, they are a reflection of God himself. 
To follow the moral law is to be part of the the household of God. It's to commune with him and fellowship with him. It is to relate to him according to his own character. And so those commandments are important and they are timeless and they are binding because they are a reflection of who God is himself. And so this breakdown, civil, ceremonial, moral, it's, it's good. It's not bad. I, I don't think it works perfectly. I think there's overlap between certain laws that fit into multiple categories. Uh, another way, perhaps a more helpful way, is to simply have two categories. And those are to have the, the natural law and the purposeful law. Okay, th- that distinction simply says that certain laws were given with a certain specific and narrow purpose. They, they were necessary for the sacrificial system or for the nation of Israel, while, while other laws simply flow directly from the character of God. They are part of his nature. They reflect who he is, and therefore they are timeless and eternal. I, I kind of like that, that simple two distinction better than the three types of laws. But listen, all of this to say... Because the commandments fall into the natural or the moral law, which flow from God's own character, they're timeless and binding on our lives even today. I think it was Phil Riken in his commentary who said that in order for God to remove the Ten Commandments and make them no longer binding, to remove any of these natural laws, God would have to un-God himself in order to do that. Because they're a reflection of who he is. They're part of his character. And so to change those or to make them less important would be to shift who he is. And we know that he is unchanging. These moral and natural laws remain very important and foundational for our lives today. We must pay close attention. In other words, church, the you of this verse is the original audience. And it's God's people throughout all of God's word. And it's you and me here today. We must listen. We, like the original audience, praise God, have been saved and given a great salvation in and through Jesus Christ. We've been delivered from our enemies. But now, like the Israelites, we are people who who are not without ongoing temptations and struggles in our hearts. We're tempted in in many ways, just as they were, and we need the warnings and the commandments of God in our lives as well. That brings us to our second point, which gets at the next two words, you shall have. The words shall have. What is clear is that these Ten Commandments were originally spoken to the people of Israel as they had just been delivered from Egypt. They were delivered. God had redeemed them from slavery with his strong and mighty hand. But yet, they were people in the original context who were still weak and desperately in need of guidance. I remember when I was 17 years old, I had just gotten my driver's license like like a month before, and my uncle up in Maine, the state of Maine, gave me an old Toyota Camry. It was a piece of junk car, but it was free, and so I emphatically said, yes, I will take it. The only thing was that I needed to drive this piece of junk car from Maine all the way down to New Jersey, and the first leg of that trip was to get to the rest of my family in New Hampshire. And oh yeah, it was stick shift, and I had never learned how to drive stick shift. And oh yeah, I didn't have a cell phone like we have today. I had no directions, just a a napkin with about 10 lines of directions written on it. 
And oh yeah, 30 minutes into the drive, I realized that the brakes were completely shot, like metal on metal, scraping and hardly stopping. I had to learn how to downshift in order to to slow down. And oh yeah, I quickly learned that the car had a strong desire to merge left into oncoming traffic. It was a bad situation, a piece of junk car, but it was free and I took it joyfully. I remember getting there, my dad getting in the car, he said, we're not taking this to New Jersey. There's no way this thing is worthless. But listen, what seemed like a great situation at first turned out to be not, it turned out to be fraught with dangers. A a new driver should not be left alone with a car that wants to veer into oncoming traffic. Christian, we, we are in so many ways like that old car. We've been freed, praise God. We've been delivered. There's so much to celebrate. But left on our own, without the sanctifying and honestly the the repairing work of God in our lives, we're in bit for big trouble. Listen, the first commandment is here for a very specific reason because though we have been redeemed, we too have strong inclinations to veer into oncoming traffic in this life. Our brakes are shot. We too have an inclination to run towards things that our hearts desire and we often don't know how to stop. And so these words, you shall have, are words that speak to the inclination of our heart in both good and bad ways. The, the word have here in the original language, it's, a, it's honestly a fairly vague word. It doesn't express many things specifically. But, but in so many other places in God's word and in the law specifically, God commands us against false gods in diverse ways. God's word says, you shall not serve false gods. You shall not worship false gods. You shall not bow down to false gods or speak in the name of false gods or lay hold of false gods or cling to false gods or hope in false gods. Those are very clear commandments in God's word. And so it seems that here in the foundational text for the law, the Ten Commandments, God summarizes all of these different things with the word have. You shall have no other gods before me. It means to put your hope in, to trust, to find your confidence in. The word have, according to verse 3 and its use here, is a worshipful word. To have a God is, a, is to worship a God. It is to be committed to that God. And so this, this first commandment matters because throughout God's word, we see the, the inclination of God's people to worship things, to, to worship gods that are not good for their souls. The Israelites just came out of Egypt having spent 400 years there. We can only imagine that they had adopted some of the idolatrous ways of thinking. And we see it happen in chapter 32 when they create the golden calf and begin to worship it. Church, God is constantly warning his people against false worship because he knows that that we're weak that we need something to lean on, we need support in this life, but we often choose to, to worship and to lean on things that we can see and feel and touch rather than on the one true God. Our souls resonate with the hymn writer when he says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Because of remaining sin in our hearts, like that old car, we are prone to to veer off from following the one true God. We're prone to worship false and empty things. 
Church, the first commandment is as much an issue about our hearts as it is about our actions. It's a matter of lordship and worship. Who and what will rule your life on a daily basis? Who and what are you going to live for with your life? Whatever gods you have are the gods and the things that will have you. They will have your devotion and they will have your allegiance. This is a matter of lordship, of worship, of governance. What gods we have, what gods we worship will determine right and wrong for us. They'll determine what is true and what is wrong. They will determine our morals. They will determine the trajectory of our actions. To have or to worship a false god like any of the gods of Egypt or like the god of money or sex or power today, these things will have power over your life and they will inevitably veer your life in the wrong direction. These two words shall have, they're a warning to us. They warn us that, that we are made by God to be worshipers. We, we are made by God to cling to something, to be devoted to something. And God wants us to be mindful of what it is in this world that we give our allegiance to. What in this world vies for our devotion. Christian, do you know this about yourself? Do you know that you were made to worship? And do you know that you worship every moment of your life? The question is whether you worship the one true God or false gods around you. And that brings us to our our third point, the next three words. You shall have no other gods. Have you heard the phrase, uh, you become what you behold? Another way of, of saying that is that you become like that which you worship. Whatever is Lord over your life will will shape the way that you think and the way that you live. James in the New Testament in James chapter 4 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is saying that the desires of our hearts, the things that we worship, when they are not based in the one true and living God, will lead to chaos and disorder in our lives. They will shape our entire existence. And friends, if that is true, and God's word says that it is, then we must take this first commandment very seriously. We have to ask what these words, no other gods, mean in our life here today. In the original context, they would have been very relevant for the Israelite people, Yahweh had just undermined, if you remember, and he's dismantled all the other gods of Egypt, right? Every one of the ten plagues was a direct attack against a false god or group of gods in Egypt. And he was proving his supremacy over all things. But they would have still been very tempted to go back to worshiping that which they could see and touch and have been more familiar with. And church, we must humbly acknowledge that we are tempted in the same way. We might not have idols in exactly the same way, named the same way, or or with the same appearance, but that does not mean that we are not tempted to worship false gods every moment of our life. So what are the gods that you are tempted to worship? What are they? And how do they determine right and wrong in your life? Do you worship the God of money? If so, truth for you will be that success in your career 
at any cost is okay, even if it be at the cost of your marriage and your home? Do, do you worship the God of sex? If you do, truth for you will be that sexual freedom and expression is of first importance and you will give yourself to many things to try to satisfy your desires. Sexual satisfaction will be Lord over your life and it will direct your path. Do you worship the God of power? If you do, truth for you, right for you, will be that no amount of emotional manipulation, no amount of deceit, no amount of abuse of those around you will be inappropriate as long as you remain in control over those in your world. Do you worship the God of respect from others? I do. I worship that God. When you worship the God of respect, you work really hard to make sure people respect you. And when you feel disrespected, you, you begin to fight to make sure you remain in the right place by, by putting them in their place and by reminding them of how right and worthy you are of their respect. You know, just this week I felt disrespected by a friend. And you want to know how I worship the God of respect in that moment? I felt disrespected and in the moment I chose to worship the God of respect, I bowed down to the God of respect by responding to that friend very arrogantly in a text message back to him. I knew, I'm, I'm typing it out, I'm like, I know the text is too strong, I know the words are too harsh, but I was just wanting to put him in his place and remind him of who was in control and how much I deserved his respect. I was bowing down to the God of respect and I typed it out and I looked at him like, yeah, send, zoop, delivered. And I had like a split second of peace from the God of respect. And then suddenly I realized that I was bowing down to a false God and that it would not satisfy me in any way, and that it would just cause more chaos. And I had to repent before the one true God and before my friend. Church, the, the gods that we worship determine how we act. And we would do very well to consider what gods are present in our daily lives. See, listen, it's actually gracious and good and loving of God to say these eight words. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because he knows that we will become like that which we behold. And so he is good to say, do not worship those false things. Their lordship will ruin your life. My lordship will prosper your life. Yahweh wants the best for us. And so he gives us this first commandment. Christian, you cannot be a loving person like our God is while serving the God of self. It just can't happen. You cannot be a generous person or a gentle person like our God is while worshiping and coveting the things of this world. You cannot be a pure and faithful and reliable and satisfied person like our God is while worshiping the gods of independence and autonomy and, and self-expression. Our worship leads to action. We become what we behold. And so God lovingly says, you shall have no other gods before me. What does the first commandment forbid? It forbids all forms of idolatry. 
all forms of false worship. It forbids polytheism and syncretism. We, we can't sync these different gods together. We can't come in here on Sunday morning and sing our praises to Jesus and then Monday through Saturday go out and live for all the other gods that our hearts desire. No, to be a Christian is an all or nothing thing. If we have been saved by God's grace, we will seek to be so captivated by his grace and his mercy and his goodness that we will renounce all these other gods in our lives and we will worship him alone. And that helpfully brings us to our fourth and to our final point, the last two words, you shall have no other gods before me. Now the word before is an interesting word. You, you might think that it means that we should not worship any God first before God, as if, as if it's an issue of order or priority. As long as I worship Yahweh first, then I can get to all the other gods. But that's not the sense of that word. The sense of this word is you shall have no other gods before my face. You shall not bring them in my presence. You, you shall not have any of the gods before me. And since Yahweh and his presence is in all places at all times, to not have any other gods before his face is to not have any other gods at all. And we've already covered this. No other gods before me. But the word I really want to consider as we close is the word me. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 1 makes it very clear that the one who is speaking here is the Lord. Yahweh is his name, the God of the Exodus. This is the me of verse 3. And we, we must consider who this is because when we consider who this is that is demanding our allegiance in this way, we quickly realize that verse 3 is not just a restriction, church, but rather a glorious invitation. We, we must not consider that which the Ten Commandments forbids alone. We must also consider all that they commend. On the other side of every restriction is a beautiful invitation. Yes, Yahweh restricts us by saying that we should have no other gods before Him, but it's not an arbitrary rule. It's an invitation to have Him as our God. Don't have other gods. Why? Because you already have me. I've already given myself to you. I am your God. I am the one, verse 1, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the one who made you and who can satisfy you. I am the God who delights in you and who can give you the longings of your heart. I am the one who has proven my supremacy and my worth over all other gods. Nothing compares to me. I want you to have me. Phil Riken says, when God commands us to reject false gods, he is also commanding us to choose him as the true God, enthroning him as our only Lord. And he is so good to do so. Because Yahweh has just proven himself as, as so much stronger than all the other gods of Egypt. No one compares to him. He, he stands alone. He, he's the one who parted the Red Sea and drowned our enemies in its waters. He, he's the one that sends bread from heaven and brings water from the rock. He, he is the great and the only true deliverer of his people. This is who our, our Yahweh is, and, and it is his desire that we have him as our God. Verse 1, he says, I am the Lord your God. He's ours. 
Church, the invitation of this first commandment is to find our happiness and our joy in the only true source of happiness and joy. To give him our lives. The the invitation of this text is to see who he is and what he has done for us and to joyfully commit ourselves to him. And listen, if the picture of Yahweh in the Old Testament through the Exodus is not enough to win your affections, hopefully it is, But if it's not this morning, consider with me who this Yahweh is in his sending of his own son, Jesus, into this world. Because Jesus is the greatest reason for us to devote our lives to Yahweh and to have no other gods like him. There is no one like this God. What what other God comes down to his people in the form of a baby? What other God is there who who lives among his people and serves his people and washes their dirty feet? What other God is there who humbles himself and humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cruel cross? What other God cares enough for you that he enters into your pain and sorrow this morning, bearing the weight of this world on his shoulders for you? What God is there like this church? What God is there who gives hope in the midst of tragedy this morning? What God is there who is able to say with so much love and compassion, come to me, all you who are weary. It's the same me that Jesus speaks and that is spoken of in Exodus chapter 20. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What other God is there who is able to say, that he works all things together for good and who has proven his ability to do so. What God is there who says, look at how I died for you and how I rose from the grave for you. My son and my daughter, if I can take the darkest moment in history and work it together for your good, If I'm able to conquer the grave itself, how much more able am I to take your sorrow and your pain this morning and this week, your loss and your grief? How much more am I able to take your your confusion and your frustration and even your anger over the loss of your dear sister and prove to you my steadfast love? I am the God who hears your groaning, who sees your sorrow, who is attentive to your cries. He says, yes, The weight of sorrow and sin is still here. Darkness remains, but you shall have no other gods before me because I have already proven that I am making all things new. I am am righting the wrongs. I am reversing the regrets. I am redeeming the ruin of this world. I am the God of all eternity, and in the end, My people, I will stand alone as the all-sufficient one. I will wipe away every tear. Death and sorrow will be no more because of who I am and what I've already done for you. This is who our God is. This is Yahweh. By His grace and His mercy, He has become the treasure of greatest value, the pearl of greatest price. We should want to have no other gods before him. Yes, he deserves our full allegiance. He deserves our praise. He deserves our affections and our full worship. And it should be our joy to give them to him this morning, even in our sorrow. 
The Westminster Longer Catechism asked the question, what are the duties required by the first commandment? And it answers the question in this way. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God. And to worship and glorify Him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of Him, believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in Him, being zealous for Him, calling upon Him, giving all praise and thanks and yielding all obedience and submission to Him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please Him and sorrowful when in anything He is offended and walking humbly with Him. That is what is required of the first commandment. And as God's redeemed people, we should say yes and amen. We give you all the glory, Lord. We adore you. We honor you. We delight in you. We are zealous for you. We will yield all obedience and submission to you. God, we trust you. We trust you even when this world is so broken and hurting. We trust you because there is no other God like you. Friends, would you stand with me as I pray?